Well, you can make your way to Romans chapter 14. Keaton. Oh, we're going without the lights. Sorry. Um, in <laughs> Romans chapter 14. But the video you just saw. No, nah, it's got to have a key. You're good. Don't worry about it. Um, the, the video you just saw is um, the, the pastor that's talking there. His name's Robin Scothern. He's um, clearly not American, as you can see his cool accent. Um, but he's in a church planting residency at the Crowded House Church in Sheffield, England. And um, we were, Lindsay and I were at the Acts 29 Global Gathering um, this last week. And we just sat down um, for lunch one day and they, and him and another person that we had met from the UK last year kind of sat down and we were just talking about just churches, just asking questions, getting to know each other, realizing that we speak English, but we don't understand half of what each other says because we were eating fries and they were chips. So it makes you wonder what are chips. But, um, right. Have you ever thought about it? I, I didn't ask. So I lost that opportunity, but it, what was really interesting about Robin, as we continue the conversation is how much of a similarity where they plan to plant in 2018 is similar to our area. And then in just him personally, that's getting to talk. We, we learned that, um, Robin is a veteran of the, the British military, that his, he was a, a major in the British military. And if I thought I didn't understand U S military, I sure don't understand the British descriptions of everything. His wife was, um, in the uh, a sergeant in the Royal Air Force. And so it was just kind of this interesting connection that we had based on our context in him personally, but then also the fact that they're connected to a larger group of people, bigger than we are, but yet they're still kind of set in a rural area, which very much feels like we are ourselves. And so I showed you that video just to, to ask that you would, would pray alongside us that if we're um, we're, we're considering thinking about partnering with them and, and what that would mean. And it means more than just sending resources. That means building a relationship, um, eventually sending people to co-labor there as them providing people to come here to just to see that context. And so that that is our prayer that we would consider that that if this is someone where we can globally partner to see the church grow, that that would become evident. And so that's why we it, it's really cool to see how our perspective of church is, is kind of clouded by our experience. And, and especially when you talk to people in the UK and overseas, when you realize that, that our church right here, which many consider small and insignificant in most places, is a megachurch. That, that numbers doesn't represent vitality, but a spiritual and gospel awareness. And so, if you will, pray with us in that to see how we can partner Effectively, we also met with the guys from Restoration Philadelphia, um, and we'll talk about that later, um, about how we can partner with them more specifically in the coming future. But for today, as we look at Romans chapter 14, as we begin um, Romans chapter 14, it's kind of a, it's, it's a hard but very important passage. And, and to kind of set our minds um, to where we would like to go in this, I want to ask you, how do you respond to disagreement? When you have a disagreement with someone, how do you respond? And then when I was thinking through that, really, I could come up with two main categories of response to a disagreement. One is those people who engage and, and they engage by engage. I mean, they defend their point at all costs that if you disagree with them, they immediately 
run into this assault on, here's why I believe this, what's happening, here's going. They're very much engaged in a disagreement. But then on the opposite, contrary to that, you have those that withdraw. That, that if you see a disagreement, and, and that might be some of you, that even thinking about disagreement has you a little unsettled. Like, ooh, I'm, I don't want to mess with that. And so you withdraw. But what we have to understand is that both of those responses, whether we're engaging or withdrawing to conflict, is in a sense a way to control the situation. That you either control the situation by overbearing engagement to determine and, and prove that you're correct or that you're right, or you withdraw to control the situation. Whereas if you're withdrawn, then the disagreement has no validity. The other person can't do that. And so both of them are controlling aspects of disagreements. And often how we respond, though, is determined by the substance of the disagreement and what we feel in that. If we feel offended, most people tend to engage more. If you're offended, we, we rise to our own defense, right? If, you're, if, if someone is misrepresenting you in a disagreement, then you're going to rise and you're going to engage more than if maybe you felt abused or used based on the disagreement. You're going to withdraw more to take that opportunity away. But then what we do then is ask ourselves, do you respond the same way if the disagreement is within someone of the church? Because how we relate to each other within the context of the body of Christ determines the view which those outside of the body of Christ view us as. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at in this passage. So if you will follow along as we read Romans chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. And so in Romans 14, verse 1, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this is the end. Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord of both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit to to guide us in our time today. Father God, I just pray that, God, we would submit our lives to what your word has called us. God, that we wouldn't shape your truth to fit our needs, God, but we would be wholly submissive to your spirit as it imparts your word to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so 
If, if you look at that, those of you that don't like disagreement, that, that passage is kind of unsettling, right? It's like, wait a second, how, how are we supposed to respond in all of this? But you can see that it's a difficult passage to understand. It's a difficult passage to kind of bring into our own lives. But it's also very important because we have to get community within the body of Christ right. That if we don't pour our efforts into being a unified yet diverse body, then we're going to end up being a dysfunctional body. And no one is drawn to dysfunction. Right? You, you flee from dysfunction. If you know people in your life that just don't really function well, you avoid them, right? And that's what happens when the culture sees the church as dysfunctional. They avoid it instead of being drawn to it. And so community is very important. And that unity is what's on display for all to see. And so as we look at our unity, we first need to understand that it's a product of grace. When you look at verse 1 again, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinion. So we're told to welcome those of weak faith. Right? You welcome them, but, but if we didn't add the do not quarrel over them, then we could feed into this idea that we can welcome everyone, but our welcoming is to fix them. Right? And, and you know people that are that way, that you're going to bring someone in so that you can fix what's wrong with them. But, but when we see this don't quarrel over them, we realize that Paul's calling us to a no-strings-attached welcome to those who are of weak faith. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a book that Keaton just read. Um, we had him read different books. They got to pick books and they read over the summer. And one of them was about Jim Thorpe. If you don't know, Jim Thorpe was a Native American athlete considered by some to be the best athlete ever, at least in the history of our country. And, and there was one section in that book that, that talked about how the, the government had come in and they started doing what? In the name of assimilation, they took these proud Native American men and they put them in schools, or these boys in schools, and what did they do? They completely changed their appearance. They made them cut their braids, which was a sense of pride. And so there was pictures, and so Keaton's looking at this and seeing these same three guys months ahead had their braids. You could see this. There's this, this proud visual represented in that picture, and then months later you see them in a, in a, in a suit, their hair's cut, and they just, there's just not the same gleam in their face. And so what we have to understand, though, is just as the, the American government cut the braids of those Native Americans in the name of, um, of assimilation, so often the church cuts away the uniqueness of those who are diverse and different from us in the name of unity. And so what we have to understand is that we can't cut away the uniqueness of people just to say that they're welcome and they're a part of us. We have to find a way to be united despite our differences. And that's what makes the church so unique in the world that we live in today. And so then it asks the question, well, who are the weak ones, right? And, and, and to, to understand that, we need to not think in weak versus strong. We need to think more of maturity level or immaturity. And so, because what Paul's talking about here is, is those believers whose faith were not, they, they hadn't fully become aware of the freedoms that were theirs in Christ, that they were still living by rules and obligations that were no longer there in Christ. And so if you look at the context of Rome, you had Jewish believers, you had Gentile believers in one. And so you would have the Jewish people still trying to figure out how does the law or how does the observance of our ceremonies, how does all that work? How does our diet within what we've been called to live fit within the Gentiles who aren't in that? And they can do everything. And Paul's saying, well, you should welcome those who haven't fully realized the freedoms in Christ just the same as those who have. 
that there's not a distinction as value, but yet that we welcome the weak ones, not to fix them, but to celebrate the diversity that we have within the convictions that the people hold. And when we understand that, it leads us to the necessity of grace. That if we can extend grace to the people in our family as the body of Christ, then we're never going to extend it to someone outside of that. Or if we're going to be united, a united family that seeks to bring glory to God through our life, our mission, and our worship, then we have to extend grace to others who have different convictions than we do. Now, remember that when we say different convictions, this is not saying that we have convictions that are contrary to what Scripture has called us to. That our convictions can never run contrary to God's word. But there's often, and if you know this, there's so many people that wish that, that God's word was, gave you every single decision, right? That you could open and give you, but there's so much that's not spoken of specifically. And that's what Paul's getting at is the convictions within those areas that we deal with. And there's some, some broad areas to where we see these different convictions. And, and this one, in welcoming those of weak faith, makes me think of, of how we relate to what we allow in our body. Right? Because there's so many different convictions. There's convictions about, is, is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it, is it okay to, to eat meat? Is it okay to not? Like, what does your diet consist of? Is it, it, should you be using other substances or supplements to promote your health and extend vitality in that sense, do you quickly use medicine? How do you view medicine? I mean, and, and even in our small church, you're going to find people on both sides of those who have deeply rooted convictions who are not necessarily contrary to Scripture. So how then do we respond to both of those? We extend grace. We extend grace because you realize that that God has created a diverse, unified community. And so when we see people who have different convictions than us, what do we do? First, we stop trying to be right. Most of the time, disagreements happen because of convictions when each person has to be right. But you realize if you're just trying to be right, then you're never listening to the other person. Or if you're listening, you're only looking for bits and pieces that allow you to prove your point. So you stop seeking to be right, and then you ask questions, both of yourself and the other person. So if you're in community, you're in relationship, in the midst of like our small groups, if you see that there's a difference in conviction of, of on any of these that associates with your body, whether it's drinking or medicine or how you eat, you have to ask questions of why those convictions are held. Because when you ask questions and you listen, then you'll understand that most of the time those convictions are very deeply rooted in a personal belief, but they might be different in you, but it doesn't make them sinful. But also, when you ask questions, you might unearth some convictions in yourself or others that, that are based on a sinful belief. If it's out of fear, like I'm going to operate a certain way because I fear that if I do this, then I'll be living in sin. Or... Is it control? Like you have these convictions on, on certain aspects because this is a way that I can control. And, and really, this is what I think of um, when it comes to the, the supplements and what we put. Because so many times people are sold the idea that you can add time to your life based on how you eat or what you allow in. 
And if your idea is to control the outcome of your life, then you're not resting on a conviction that's not sinful. You're resting on the idea that you can control the end of your life. That you're forgetting to realize that, that our life has already been set before us. Now, yeah, you can have that conviction that you're going to have a, a healthy life until then. But if you're doing that to add time, then that's not a healthy conviction. But the only way you find out is if you ask questions and you listen. You build relationships, you extend grace, and then ultimately, if that conviction is just based on a personal belief that's not leading into sin, then you have to respect the other side. Look at, look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And so what Paul's saying is there is that you have to respect the other side. You don't despise the other side for having a different conviction, or you don't pass judgment on them because of that. And that also includes in the passive-aggressive manner that most people operate on Facebook. Right? Because most of the time, when you see something, you know someone has a different conviction, everything that you post is, is kind of pointing them down to where, hey, you're wrong. Right? But you're not going to tell them that. You're just going to be passive-aggressive in it because you know they follow you. And so maybe if I just put enough of this, they'll, they'll see it and they'll come around. But if their conviction's not held on anything sinful, then it's not your job to pass judgment or to despise them because of a conviction that's different than yours. Instead, you should extend grace because that's a gospel awareness of their identity in Christ. So as grace is extended in relationships will be built and then growth will happen. And so if it is a a matter of someone just being more or less immature than someone else, then through a relationship where grace is extended, growth happens. And you realize that because people's convictions also change. If you've followed Lindsay and I's life lately, we have a, a more deeply held conviction about how often we take medicine because of an effect that, that Lindsay had with that. And so when I cut my finger on the table saw, what? You go to the doctor, it got stitches, and what did they do? He gave me antibiotic. Right? Why? Well, because it could get infected. Not because it was, because so so we went, we filled the prescription, and then it was like, you know what? Why, why take that if we don't have to? Because that was a conviction that we don't have to have that medicine. But there are people that would hear that and think, how dare you not use a blessing that God has provided to have modern medicine? Right? How can you not do that? But it's a conviction that's not leading into sin. It's not rooted on anything that's sinful. And so there can be grace allowed on both sides of that. And that's when community flourishes. That's when relationships are built. And that's when it's sustained. And so what we need to remind ourselves is that we're never to hold people to a standard that's not set by Scripture. That if our conviction is holding people to a standard that's not set by Scripture, then that's not a conviction or not a stance that we should hold people accountable to. But also, we should never allow a freedom that's prohibited by Scripture. So we can't hold a standard that the scripture hasn't set, but we also can allow a freedom, even though it's a convictional freedom that people say they can have, that's prohibited by scripture. Because at the bottom of everything that we have is God's word. And that's the standard we have. And if it's not allowed by scripture, or if it's not prohibited by, then there's, there's grace amongst those convictions. And if we're going to be united as a body in our lives, and our mission, and our worship, then we have to extend grace to those who might have differing convictions. But then the problem becomes, how do we do that, right? And that's when we understand that uni- unity 
It's produced through love or by love, with love. And that's when you understand what is, and really that connects us back with Romans 13, 8, right? Oh, no one, anything except to what? Love one another. Because what gives energy to the Christian life? Is it, is it not a gospel awareness that Christ was sent to us when we didn't deserve it? That he drank of the wrath of God for our sin, that as he was hanging on the cross there, our sins were too, yet he clothed us in a righteousness that we could not earn or achieve, and that we have life because of his resurrection. That's what gives us the fuel to live the Christian life and to extend grace as we pursue love with those in our community. Look again at verses 6 through 9. It says, Let the one who observes the day observe it. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We read those verses, what sticks out in your mind? As I'm betting most of you are like me, and it's the, the, the reality of the total submission that everything is because of God. That everything that we have is to the Lord. And that's an idea that has been lost in our culture. The, the reformers called this soli deo gloria. That everything we do is for God's glory alone. They understood that. And what happened is that when the church became something that you attend instead of something that you are, we lost this idea that we live to the Lord or we die to the Lord. We don't understand that because the church was sold as something you just attend. But if you just attend, then it's not for anything but yourself. But if we actually live as the church, which what we're called to do, to be on mission, to bring glory to God's name, to expand his kingdom then we realize that everything that we do has its root in God's grace and mercy. That includes our unity. That includes our identity as followers of Christ. That's why in the, the, you see all the time people pointing to that fact. In fact, the, the, the catechism that we've started, the New City Catechism that we've started using with the children in the, the, the library down in their lessons begins. It's this right here, if you want, by the way. We have some. If you don't have one, take it. Because it's a good way to start teaching our children just truths of God based on Scripture. And the very first question in that is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer that they provide is that that we are not our own, but body and soul in life and death. We belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The kid's answer is that we're not our own, but we belong to God. And what that's doing is it's setting us, reminding us that we are not our own. And that's the very first question in this. And it just happens to also be rooted in Romans 7 through 8. That everything we do, we live for the Lord. 
And so then when we understand that, we look at that and say, I've got that, but how does that affect the unity? How does that affect us pursuing love? Because what we understand then is that if everything is for the Lord, then how we relate to our mind on this intellectual, what we allow to come into our mind is going to be different based on our convictions of how we live that reality out. And so, and not only do we have different convictions based on what we allow or ingest with our bodies, but what we allow or ingest with our minds. And so then we determine, how do you view entertainment? Do you watch TV? Do you not? Do you watch movies, but only to a certain rating level? Or do you allow anything? How do you spend your time on the internet? How does technology impact your family or your children? How do you allow that? Do you regulate time? Or do you not limit time? Those are all deep convictions that we hold that we can have people on both sides of those issues and not still be allowing a spirit of disunity. But we can embrace and pursue love even though other people have different convictions that we do. One of the biggest ones for our specific body that I can think of right here is just as Watershed Church is, is the idea of where do we send our kids to school? Right? Because we have people on both sides. Do you homeschool or do you send them to public school? And what happens then is most of the time that, that you get to one of those camps and you're so polarized on that camp that you can't believe or even understand why someone that has a different conviction could be allowing that. And you might not say that to them to their face, but you sure think it. Right? And, and we've been in that. We've had those situations. And honestly, right now, I think we're pretty good at those, those conversations. From what I've experienced, but it hasn't always been that even our three years, like we've had situations where someone who was so passionate about homeschooling said everything about public school is evil to a room that had public school teachers in it. And so then there wasn't community there and they didn't understand why. And I'm like, well, maybe it's because you're condemning their profession. But the same thing happens on the other side is that you have people that are solely rooted in that you can, it's okay to send public school. You're like, why would you send your kids? Why why wouldn't you do that? Because you're going to create weird kids that don't know how to interact within people as if public school is the only way to get social interactions in our culture. But we do that, right? And there's convictions. And instead of pursuing love, we cast out. It's not saying one is better than the other, but what we have to do is honor the convictions of others as long as they're not going against Scripture. And the last time I checked, there's not a verse that says, homeschool your kids or send them to public school to be a missionary. You don't have that. So you allow convictions of each other on both sides, and then you honor one another by pursuing love and extending grace and building a unity that happens through diversity that then goes into the world to bring glory to God's name. But if we're not going to pursue love, and we're not going to pursue unity through love, then we're going to become dysfunctional. And then we're just going to waste our time. Right? Because what we have to understand is that everything that that people do convictionally based, if they're a believer in Christ and they understand that they're trying to make those decisions for their family or for themselves that live up to the fact that if whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And their convictions are based on that. And if they are, then we pursue love and grace. We don't ostracize or say, I can't believe you do that. And again, not even in the passive-aggressive way. 
We have to pursue love. And then if we do pursue love and we do extend grace, then we're going to realize that our unity produces a fellowship that's lasting. If you look at the verses 10 and 11 and 12, we kind of see this, this odd ending to this if you just look at it in passing. It says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before God, before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And then verse 12, So then each of us will give an account to himself, to God. And we look at that, and you, you might think, but you just said we're talking about fellowship. But what I'm talking about is the fellowship that is led to or created by a pursuit of love and grace that's going to allow you to stand before the judgment seat of God and be a good steward of what he's given you. Because this isn't the judgment seat that's talking about sin. This is the judgment seat that says where you say how you were stewarding what God has given you. And if you're not producing love, and if you're not extending grace then you're not going to be a good steward of what God has given you. And so if our unity is a product of grace and we look to pursue love, it's going to produce a fellowship that's going to allow us to confidently stand before the judgment seat and say, I was a steward of what you gave me to the best of the ability that you gave me. And when you see that and you understand that idea of fellowship, you have confidence to continue living who you are, even based on your convictions, even when there's disagreements, that we can be united in the fact that we are one in Christ. And that oneness in Christ doesn't just translate to our culture. It translates to the global church where everyone, even now, are proclaiming the glory of Christ, even if we can't understand the language that they're saying. So what we have to understand is that we need to stop spending more time judging other people's convictions and start looking at the stewardship of our own lives. And if we do that, we'll extend love and we'll extend grace and we'll be unified even though we're diverse, even in the convictions that we hold. And that's what the world doesn't understand. How can, if we go back to the the school one, sorry, it's just stuck in my mind. That's how people won't understand how can we have completely polar opposite convictions yet be unified on mission in our lives and in our worship. The world doesn't understand that because diversity is not that everyone's the same. And so we have to make everyone the same. Or unity is not that everyone's the same. Right? It's not that we're the same and look alike. It's that we're united in a common mission. Even though we have different convictions, the thing that, com- that cements us together is a gospel awareness of who we are in Christ. But then that brings up the final conviction that, that we kind of see is that What do we pursue with our hearts, right? Because there's people that view the difference of their heart, including like how your heart, how you pursue, what you pursue with your heart determines what you spend your time, energy, and effort with, right? What you're passionate about is what you find yourself doing. And so there's people that have completely different aspects of that. When it comes to service within the church, we would all say service is good. We would all say that we should support the mission of the church, but some people are convicted that maybe my only contribution is to just give the resources because I have an abundance to fund the ones that are actually on the ground doing the work. You have to ask yourself why. If you're only funding it because you're scared to go and to mess with the dirtiness of people, then that's not a truly held conviction. But if it's, this is what I can contribute, 
then that can be okay. But maybe there's growth in that to where you can do both. But it's also not just about serving, and I don't have to give of my resources and time. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do the work. We're called to be everything, right? But as we have different convictions on different levels of that, what we pursue with our hearts, then we have to extend grace and love to those within us, right? That, that relates to giving within the church. Some people have a deep held conviction that you have to give a true tithe 10%. And then there's others that say, well, it's not 10% per se, but it's a consistent overflow, continual view of giving. That's why in our membership stuff, we say we don't, we don't push a tithe, even though we have people that tithe, but we say consistent giving. And so there's some people that give less percentage. There's some people that could give more. Based on your conviction, we can extend grace and love in that as long as we're unified in the mission to live our lives for the glory of God. And so regardless of what our convictions are, we're going to have to give an account of our lives, of how we stewarded what God gave us. And if we're not extending grace, if we're not pursuing love, then it makes me fear what he will say about the level of our stewardship. And this is not a legalistic idea of you better be doing this. This is, if you have a conviction that's not contrary to what God has called us in Scripture, then work hard, pursue that, but be unified with someone else that has a different conviction at the same time. So we seek to fellowship with everyone despite differing convictions. And it's amazing when that happens. It's amazing when we don't have to be right, when we don't have to be the ones that say, this is the only way to do it. And so that, that, gets, that, gets, that gets muddy at times because so many times our convictions are not just in what we do in church, but maybe it's within how we live our lives. Maybe it's how we gain our income. So you can't force your convictions that are determining your income on someone else within the body because that's your conviction if it's not theirs. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of putting our agenda first based on our convictions if it's causing disunity among the body because disunity leads to dysfunction and dysfunction leads to us going off mission, not stewarding the resources that we've been given by God to bring glory to his name. So even when we have members of our body, which we do, on both sides of some deeply held convictional beliefs that aren't leading to sin, that aren't contrary to Scripture, we can still be unified because we all understand the gospel. And that's exactly why the church is so unique. Because the church is the only organization, if you will, it's the only body or gathering of people that can celebrate, truly celebrate diversity and extend grace and pursue love and have a fellowship that lasts despite differing convictions. So we're a diverse family of Christians whose unity, or we should be a diverse family of Christians whose unity is a product of the grace that we've received as we extend it to others. That's a result of our relationships pursued through loving one another as we've been called to love because we ourselves have been loved and we didn't deserve it. And it produces true fellowship and when we have that fellowship, we're united in our efforts to bring glory to God's name through the proclamation of his gospel in our lives, through our mission, and as we worship. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you that even when we are different, that even when we can have convictions, that we can be unified by your gospel, that we can be unified towards your mission to bring glory to your name, to preach a gospel to those who in darkness have never heard it. God, we thank you that you've called us to be a light of the world. And I just pray that we would be a body of believers marked by the extension of grace to one another, that we love one another well, and that we have a fellowship that is real and genuine, regardless of our convictions, even when they're different. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.